You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. So I spent last week in Northern California on a family vacation and everywhere the talk was about past and present and hopefully not future wildfires. And I I came home intent on doing a segment that I captioned Western Wildfires for Dummies. I, of course, the dummy in chief. And lo and behold, I then read in on a deep dive in the Los Angeles Times by my next guest who co-authored a piece under the headline, California says federal let it burn policy is reckless as wildfires rage out of control, reminding me of one conversation that I had with a a lifelong Northern Cali resident who said to me, the problem is we don't let the fires burn anymore. You know, back in the day. We'd let them burn and they've changed that policy, uh, which may or may not be the case, by the way, based on on the reading that I've just done. In any event, Anita Chabrier covers California state politics and policy for the L.A. Times and is based in Sacramento. Anita, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. So I guess my first question is, and and thanks for the piece that you wrote. I've posted it on my website. It's in all of my social media, and I hope that people will take the time to to read. It's chock full of information. Has it always been like this, meaning the prevalence of what I'm calling loosely these Western United States fires? When one looks back to the, the dust bowls of the 30s, would we have seen this type of conflagration activity? The answer is complicated, but yes. So the West has always had wildfires, even before it was populated. We get lightning strikes and things burn. The difference is the condition of our forests now. Our forests are stressed by drought. They haven't been uh, thinned or maintained. We we did put out fires for nearly 100 years, so they've grown dense. We have a, a beetle infestation that has killed tens of thousands of trees, so we have forests full of dead trees. So the answer is yes, we've always had fire, but now we have conditions that make those fires far more drastic and dramatic. Okay, another of my naive questions, and thank you for playing along. Has firefighting strategy recently changed? Have we moved from a monitor or fight strategy to one or the other, or has the the approach that firefighters have taken remained consistent? Well, there are no naive uh, or uninformed questions in firefighting because it is intensely complicated. And so the answer to that is we haven't really changed, but 
of different agencies have been doing different things for decades. So when you have an agency like CAL FIRE, which is California's main firefighting force and, and one of the largest firefighting forces in the world, they are dealing with places that may be in wildlands, but are also very close to power lines and urban centers. So they're very, very hardcore about trying to, to put out every fire. When you deal with the feds, they are dealing with more wildlands, forest lands, and rangelands, and they have traditionally let some of those burn uh, because they're not near anything and because fire is a part of managing wildfire. Prescribed burns do help. Some of what I learned from your reporting, I did not know. The feds own 45% of Cali? Holy smokes. I know. It's a it's a shocking number, isn't it? And California, when you get to the western states, I think the feds own something like 70% of Nevada. So I think when you're on the East Coast, you don't realize how much land in the West is actually under federal control. But it's millions and millions of acres. So who, who then makes the call if it's a wildfire that's on that 45% that's owned by the federal government? Whatever agency owns that land. So if the Forest Service owns the land, they get to be in charge of the fire. If uh, the Bureau of Land Management owns it, it's their fire. Whoever owns the land or, or controls the land controls the fire. Is this issue, firefighting, the, the prevalence, the increase of dangerous Western wildfires, like everything else in the country, partisan is there a Republican argument? Is there a Democratic argument to this? Or, or is, has it escaped that? You know, it, it has escaped it somewhat. So there's definitely a partisan angle to it. I think if you go back years, there's definitely a feeling on the, on the more right side or the Republican side that there's been too much environmentalist intervention in the forest, that we've done too much to protect them, to stop logging, to control them that has contributed to this. And there is truth in that argument. Um, and on, on the other side, there's the feeling that we haven't, we also haven't managed our forests well, but um, not taking conservation seriously enough. But I think that the number one thing I see as I go out in, in the aftermath of these fires or during the, these fires is that left or right, Republican or Democrat, people are losing their lives and their homes and their legacies. And they just really are wanting answers. Is part of the way one leads their life if they're in an area that's been ravaged by fire in the past to, to always have the plan of what you're leaving the house with if, God forbid, you're in that position? I mean, is that part and parcel of, of living in these parts of the Western United States? You know, you'd think it was, but there's some people are prepared and some aren't. And every time I go out, I meet those stubborn people who are under evacuation orders and they're going to stay there anyway because they're going to see it through. So you really, you really have a, a range of people and how they look at fire. But absolutely, the thing that you're seeing in Northern California and that's contributing across the West to all this is that more people are living close to places that burn. And especially when you get into Northern California, uh, you're, you're dealing with folks who are not rich. So you have a lot of, you have a lot of, communities of, of people who are poor living close to fire. And when you're poor, it's hard to evacuate. You can't afford a hotel. You can't afford to leave behind your crops or your cattle or all these things. And so there's really an economic uh, factor to this that we often don't talk about. Can you explain to me in a nutshell the role of private firefighters and how they factor into this? 
we don't have enough firefighters at all. And so there are uh, entire crews of firefighters. And I think one thing that people aren't aware of is a lot of our firefighting aircraft are contracted. So every year there's um, battalions of, of just private firefighters out there alongside our state, our federal, our international partners. And one of the things that we're really beginning to talk about now is that we don't employ our firefighters year-round. So a lot of agencies uh, employ them for the, their seasonal. They get a job for nine months, and then they're basically asked to go on unemployment for three months until we need them back. And, you know, this is a dangerous and difficult job. So now there's a, a, think a growing awareness that perhaps we should employ them year-round. But, Anita, I, I, I asked an imprecise question. I'm thinking about wealthy Californians who employ a force of their own that they can turn to if need be. Yes, that is true. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't get what you were going there. But yeah, there are fire crews. Uh, you know, that shows you the difference of, of being in a Malibu Canyon as opposed to a, a canyon up north, right? Right. Uh, in some of these wealthy areas, there are people who are hiring fire crews that are, you know, kind of a mercenary is the wrong word, but fire crews for hire who'll come out with their water tanker and sit on your property and spray it down. Uh, But the the truth is, is that even with that, when these fires get going, when you get a a truly uncontrolled wildfire, even uh, a single private crew like that is not going to save your property. Once it gets to a certain size, the firefighters themselves will tell you the only thing that's going to stop this is a change in the weather, a change in the wind, a change in the heat, a change in the humidity. That was actually on my list. I was wondering when it gets of a certain size or scope, what what exactly can they do? And the answer seems to be little or nothing. When especially when we get these wind driven fires, it's the wind is going to to push it forward. And you see fires where the embers jump miles. I mean, if you really get the wind going, you can have all the firefighters you want in that line. You can dump all the fire retardant you want. And the wind is just going to blow the embers somewhere. So they become incredibly hard to control and and hard to predict. One of the things that you see firefighters talking so much about now is better fire science technology. How do we predict what a fire is going to do? And so I think there's a lot of emphasis on that as conditions just grow more extreme. This is Anita Chabrier from the L.A. Times. Thanks for being so gracious with your time. Just one or two more questions, if I may. For those who've not seen what you and I are describing, and I've never I've never seen a fire. I take it from words that you've offered so far that you have probably on many occasions uh, up close. But to, to see the scarred landscape, you know, I was in somebody's company who was explaining to me, well, you know, look at that hill and you're looking at 2017. But over here, this is what came close last year. And it's all over the place. It's crazy. Sometimes I will drive up to a fire and I have to ask the same questions, right? Because there'll be burn patches and, and you don't know if they're from this fire or last year's, or three years ago. But the the landscape has just been uh, crisscrossed by fires. But what's still amazing is that there's so many millions of acres that haven't burned in, in decades. And so we're not out of the woods yet. There's tons of fires, there's tons of scarred landscape, but there's still millions of acres that could go. I know that last week the president had a virtual call with Western governors. Was there anything that came out of that of significance? I thought that was a fascinating call, and I guess that shows you how boring my life is. 
But, um, you know, the Western governors are really united in this idea of asking the federal government to be more aggressive about initial fire starts. So as we talked about, when things start on federal land, um, they are, in certain instances, monitoring those fires, but letting them burn. And they have gotten out of control more than once and, and crossed into populated areas. And I think that there's just a sense from the Western governors that the, the time for that kind of uh, fire management is past. We're just, the weather conditions are too drastic. The drought's too drastic. We need to try to put everything out. But the reality is, is that we do not have the capacity to put everything out. So it really is a, a catch-22 that is growing more tense. Final question. What's burning now? What's burning as we speak on the West Coast? Well, there's quite a lot. We have a ton of fires out here, but the Dixie Fire is, I think, the biggest right now. It's about a quarter of a million acres, and it's it's up in Northern California in Plumas County. It's where uh, the Doyle and, and some of these others have burned, um, which just shows you how big the national forest is. It's a whole nother quarter of a million acres that's now on fire and and threatening a number of towns as we speak. Anita, that was excellent. Exactly what I was hoping you would provide. And I'm very appreciative of your time. Oh, I appreciate you having me on and taking an interest in our fires. Absolutely. Anita Chabrier, ladies and gentlemen, from the Los Angeles Times. Thank you, Anita. Thank you. Dan, I uh, I wonder what thoughts you might have. This was really a, an awakening for me to come home. And I don't know if you've spent any time in that part of the world, but I ask you because of your role as, you know, a firefighter mm-hmm. uh, and emergent responder. It's it's an unbelievable situation, I guess, like so much that when you're in one part of the country, you, you know, you're parochial and you look at your issues and you see the news and you may even report the news like we do. But until you see it, you can't yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, until you see it, you don't appreciate it. And and wildland firefighting and wildfires is, is an entirely different ball game than uh, than than firefighting than structural firefighting, which is what I do. And so I've never been to uh, a wildfire because we just don't have those here uh, in Maryland. But it is uh, it is incredibly dangerous, and I can I can understand both sides of the argument of of letting it burn versus versus not. And you know, in plenty of places, they actually do controlled burns. They do wildland yes. management where they on purpose they light these fires uh on uh, all the time to one get rid of invasive species uh plants and, and growth uh and to clear the undergrowth to lessen the future fire danger uh but they do it under very you know strict uh careful monitored conditions so it's uh yeah it's 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 very dangerous it's very sad um and but it it, it happens all the time if, if um, you know, to me, to, to be dependent on the cloud means I want those family photographs mm-hmm. and I want to make sure that they're protected. Uh, if I lived out there, I you would have to have in, in certain parts of the, the state or, or, or Oregon or Washington, you would have to have a contingency plan, an absolute plan of what are we doing if it comes our way? What are we protecting? Where's our data? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That would be like a constant concern, especially as we're coming into the season now. 
Yeah, big time. And because guess what? Your garden hose is not going to put out a fire. It, your garden no. hose is not going to, it doesn't have the volume or the pressure to put out uh, a, a fire of that magnitude. And they grow very, very quickly, especially in the drought conditions. And, you know, like the guest said, the, those embers, they can jump from one place to another and instantly catch your house on fire. So I'm sure that out there, they prepare, prepare for that. Just like in the Midwest, they prepare for tornadoes. They have built in tornado uh, shelters in many homes. And yeah, out there nowadays, it's probably a lot easier to save your family mementos thanks to the advancements in technology, because the house is probably not going to make it if that fire comes and it's not controlled. I have a, a renewed appreciation. That might be an, an awkward word for the fire threat on the West Coast and the short term impact being faced by uh, climate change. Thank you, Dan. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.